Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, deportation. It's not only non-citizens who are in ICE's sights. Plus, the controversial 80 Flatbush mega project. Two local residents will tell us why they're opposed. Hi, welcome to the show. I'm Ross Tuttle, filling in for Ashley Ford, who'll be back on Monday. Earlier this week, the New York State Legislature met to discuss a process for replacing former State Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, who resigned after four women accused him of sexual assault and worse in a New Yorker article. We have on the phone Robert Carroll, Assembly Member from Brooklyn's 44th District, to tell us about the plan they came up with. Hi, Ross. How are you? Hey, uh, Assembly Member Carroll. Thanks for joining us and for coming back on 112BK. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. I wouldn't, I wouldn't phrase it as the plan we've come up with. Um, the legislature, the state assembly in particular, um, we met um, in the state constitution. Um, the legislature, if there is a resignation um, or removal of either the state attorney general or the New York state comptroller, it is up to a joint session of both the New York state assembly and senate to pick the replacement. Um, the last time this was done was in 2007 when um, the former uh, Comptroller Hevesy stepped down and uh, Comptroller DiNapoli um, was chosen as his replacement. That situation obviously was much different because there were, I believe, three years left um, or possibly more on um, Mr. Hevesy's term and so that there would not be an election so soon to the replacement, where in this situation, of course, there will be an election, um, a primary in September, and then a general election in November uh, to, f- uh, to fill the next term. So there's really only about seven months left um, in um, Schneiderman's, uh, what was would have been Schneiderman's uh, second term. And so now what we have done is the assembly has called um, for folks to submit applications, including the acting attorney general uh, Underwood, Miss Underwood, to submit um, resumes and to come before a joint committee of both the state senate and state assembly. To which, right now, I know that the state assembly is participating, but I don't believe the majority uh, conference in the state senate, that would be the Republicans, have agreed to participate. I don't think they've agreed. And so we're going to have these hearings next week. Hearings next week to see if they will participate in this process of trying to decide um, who you will recommend. Well, hearings to hear from the people who would like to possibly act as the interim Attorney General. The state, uh, the state Senate Republicans have stated pretty uh, equivocally that they will not participate. Oh, they will not participate in the process. They will not participate in the process. That's what they've said. That's what they said this week. Mm-hmm. You need 107 votes mm-hmm. um, because it's a joint session between 150 Assembly members and 63 state senators. So even though the state Senate Republicans, there's 32 of them, Um, there are 104 Assembly Democrats. And so you're almost there if the Assembly Democrats can all agree on one particular person. And so it may turn out where the Assembly could just go ahead with some help from a few senators and determine who will be the next Attorney General, at least until November? Well, until December 31st. Until December 31st, right. Obviously, um, and this is where um, I may differ from some of my colleagues, I think, look, there are 
almost 20 million people in New York State. We're going to have an election, a primary, and then a general election over the next five months. Mm -hmm. We should let those people decide what this is. And so I think Barbara Underwood, who's the acting attorney general, she can fulfill this role for the next seven months and allow there to be a primary. I don't think the Assembly or State Senate needs to go out there and try to insert some other person in there. Now, I very well politically may support some other person, that same some other person in an open election, Mm -hmm. but I don't think it's necessary for us at considering the term is almost over, to go and use our prerogative that is laid out clearly in the Constitution um, to install an interim uh, attorney general because this term is almost up. Well, you say that may be the minority opinion, but by most accounts, uh, acting attorney general Barbara Underwood is more than qualified. Um, But there was this recent op-ed, actually, in fact, this morning, uh, that suggested Assembly Speaker Hasty wants to have Letitia James be the one to take over in this interim period, which would then presumably give her a leg up as the incumbent come election time. And the Times alleges that this is to get her out of the way in the city race for mayor that would be coming later on down the road so that it could pave the way for his preferred candidate, uh, Ruben Diaz Jr. Uh, what, What do you say about that? You know, the, I don't believe the Speaker of the Assembly. Um, he has not expressed to me, and I was in a meeting with him yesterday about this issue, that he has a preferred candidate or that he even, you know, what he is thinking on those, on those things. I don't think the Assembly has decided what they're going to do. Mm. Um, and it's a large body. It's 104 members. And so I don't believe the Speaker uh, has those plans. So those plans are pretty... Um, the next mayor, mayoral election is in over three years. I mean, lots and lots of things can change by that, uh, just by looking at what happened in the last week. I don't think anyone thought we would be here. So I, I don't think that's the speaker's um, uh, feelings or thoughts on that, but you would have to ask him. Uh, you know, it's a large conference, and lots of people have opinions. Uh, I think the big thing that's important here is that I was expressing my opinion that I think we should just stay Mm -hmm. with an interim uh, attorney general, but I would not want to go out and express the views of anyone else in my conference or, of course, the speaker who um, I can say pretty clearly listens to the views of the and a wide variety of views from different members of the conference. So I think this is something that we're going to keep on working on and trying to figure out over the next um, two weeks. But I... I was just saying this is where I think the best uh, would be the best scenario, mm. but I don't believe sure. uh, I don't believe that reporting by the New York Times is completely accurate. Fair enough, fair enough. One last thing I just want to ask you. Um, I saw a report that um, uh, the outgoing or former Attorney General Eric Schneiderman had raised about $8.5 million for his reelection campaign, and that by law he's under no requirement to return the funds. Some are asking that he donate the, those funds to domestic violence programs. Is there anything that the Assembly can, can do about that? Um, I mean, look, we, we obviously could pass some type of retroactive legislation that may or may not, um, you know, be binding. Um, that is true that, you know, uh, folks retire or resign with um, money still in their campaign accounts, and oftentimes they do give it to charities or organizations. Um, 
And so I think it would make a lot of sense for him to possibly um, donate uh, a lot of that money to um, groups that work with domestic violence and the sort. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I'm sure there are people who might want him to refund their political contributions. Right. Um, but, you know, I think that's for something for him to decide. Uh, and, you know, I just don't know of the efficacy of the legislature making a retroactive um, law. I haven't heard of anyone talking about that. Well, uh, Assemblymember uh, Carroll, thank you so much for coming on and providing some clarity about this issue. We really, really appreciate it, and we'll look forward to getting you back on the show sometime soon. Thank you, Ross. All right, take care. Okay. Coming up, an argument for why the city should reject the proposal for the huge development at 80 Flatbush, which would include Brooklyn's second tallest building. But first, the U.S. deportation machine. It's not just non-citizens getting cranked through its gears. There have been a few recent media reports about U.S. citizens being processed for deportation. The numbers aren't entirely clear, but in the past 10 years, it's estimated that at least 1,400 have been detained and some have actually been removed. One person paying attention to this issue and also proposing a possible remedy is Cardozo School of Law professor Peter Markowitz, a Brooklynite who conceived of the nation's first public defender system providing lawyers to all people detained and facing deportation in New York. Peter, welcome to 112BK. Thanks so much. Good to be here. So I've been trying to get you on this show for a while to talk about your work in the area of immigration, deportation, um, and detention. Uh, and you said, well, let's wait until this article comes out in The New Yorker that actually has to do with a U.S. citizen who is facing deportation proceedings. And I was surprised that U.S. citizens could face the prospect of deportation. I imagine some people watching or listening to this program might be surprised. Can you tell me how that happens and why it shouldn't be happening? Yeah, sure. Um, it was, you know, surprising to me when I found my first case, but after, after you know, seeing several of these, it really is, I can think, indicative of a systemic problem. Um, the, the case that, that I was talking about is, is Mr. Bussey, and Mr. Um, Bussey has been a U.S. citizen since he was a teenager mm-hmm. um, and, in fact, had been recognized as such by the Customs and Border protection folks that you see when you come in through the airports and other trips outside of the country. But this time he came in, and basically because of a snafu, they didn't, you know, have him listed as a citizen. And instead of letting him in, they held on to his passport and documents and um, had him basically work as their errand boy, collecting documents that they would need to deport him if he weren't a citizen. And he thought he was trying to help them clear up the right. the, the kind of confusion. Instead, ends up several months later um, delivering documents and getting arrested and spending over two months in immigration detention wow. um, before he finally was able to meet his assigned lawyer um, and who quickly discovered he was a citizen, uh, a discovery that could have been made if anybody in the government had spent those same few minutes to really investigate the situation months before. Uh, the complication was that he—did he have a U.S. passport? I mean, No, he didn't have a U.S. passport. Um, he had applied for what's called a certificate of citizenship. And uh, basically, he had moved. He had given the government his new address, but the government started sending notices to his old address. Mm-hmm. And so he had never gotten the notices and never completed the, the process and never gotten his certificate of citizenship because of an error by the government. Right. So, but people think probably that once you're a naturalized citizen, you're free of any deportation threat. You True? should be. You should be. Um, you should be. But sadly, you're not. Um, what, what we, what's happening now is the drive on immigration agents to 
grab anybody and everybody they can and to drive up their enforcement numbers at all costs is leading to mistakes. Mm. And so we see more and more people who just shouldn't be in immigration detention landing there. And sometimes those are citizens, and we've seen a bunch of these cases. I actually represented somebody who was deported and spent 10 years in exile in the Dominican Republic before he was able to prove his citizenship, and we were able to get him back here. Uh -huh. um, but um, but in some instances, actually, it's other people who are who are wrongfully detained. It could be people with green cards mm -hmm. who are kind of wrongfully accused of something that would trigger deportation, but in fact, they didn't do it. So this is kind of um, an overzealousness to, I mean, maybe put it kindly on yeah. the, the part of ICE. Uh, are there quotas? I mean, do we understand it that way, that they are really trying to jack up the numbers? Yeah. Historically, there have been instances where we've been able to uncover quotas. Um, our clinic, you know, did a FOIA, report, a FOIA um, a lawsuit that uncovered documents of kind of secret quotas that were driving what were then fugitive operation teams. Um, they were quickly disavowed, and—but um, that was many years ago. Mm -hmm. um, what we know now is that there is tremendous administrative pressure to drive up arrest numbers. Whether there are internal quotas, it's going to take the next FOIA lawsuit to, to kind of uncover. Mm -hmm. um, but what's undeniable is the pressure on agents. Right. So that, I guess that's how we can see this sort of in the larger context. I mean, U.S. citizens kind of getting um, garbled up in this machine right. um, that we think is really impacting undocumented or individuals that in the past, like Obama, who said, well, I'm going to go after people who are felons, who are violent felons. Yeah. And he had, a, you know, kind of a clear delineation, but we're not seeing that now. We're certainly not seeing that now. Um, we are seeing a clear edict from on high, sadly, uh, you know, all the way on high, um, that their mission now is to arrest anybody and everybody that they can. And so, you know, there was a brief moment at the end of the Obama presidency where they did start imposing some meaningful prosecutorial discretion guidelines that actually did kind of protect some of the kind of most sympathetic classes of removable immigrants. Um, those have been abandoned entirely. And the, the kind of clear directive now is anybody and everybody that they can grab, who that they can put through the system, they should, because they're interested in politically driving up those numbers. The one thing that the New Yorker article did, which came out in March, yep. um, about Mr. Bussey, I talked about the historical context a little bit and how what struck me is that how deportation was being used almost as a weapon to get rid of, you know, may, what people may have deemed undesirables, yeah. like talking about Operation Wetback, for yeah. example. Can you tell us a little bit about that historical context? Yeah, sure. It's, I mean, it's sadly kind of a feature of kind of the American story that punctuated throughout our history. We've seen these episodes of kind of extreme xenophobia and racism that have often been kind of actualized through our immigration policies. We saw it kind of back in the 1800s with the Chinese Exclusion Act, right? And often these are kind of—it's a story of kind of labor cycles, where we have periods where our country is hungry for labor, and we are encouraging—actively encouraging low-wage workers to come whether it be it during the gold rush, the building of the railroads in the, you know, mid-20th century with the farming boom and the Becerra program, where we kind of encourage the, that. And then at some point when the economy softened, kind of unscrupulous politicians will kind of activate right. xenophobia and racism to— So you're taking our jobs. Yep, spin a story of economic competition, and that often just turns into, be it the kind of— 
the Chinese Exclusion Act or Operation Wetback or kind of the, the kind of recent explosion. There, there are also other periods where it's not really about economics, where there's kind of a, a, a national security story being told with, with Japanese internment. We certainly saw that. Um, where there was kind of, you know, in, this, in the fervor to, like, build nationalism, we saw a scapegoating that had no basis in fact that led to the detention of 120,000, you know, people, many of whom were also citizens. Um, and right now we kind of have the perfect storm of the two, mm -hmm. right? We have a story of economic competition being spun through the lens of xenophobia and racism, and then we have a story of terrorism and nationalism through mm -hmm. the lens of 9-11, and it has created a, a perfect storm that is kind of bearing down on the immigrant communities. Right. I mean, we have all the cancellation of all the, the temporary protected status yep. for a lot of communities. We have the so-called travel ban yep. being put into effect. It's really um, quite daunting when you think yep. about all of this oppression that is yep. happening right now. You've spent a lot of time with individuals who are in immigration detention. Sure. What, what is that experience like? I mean, the, there's a lot of languishing yep. without knowing what the heck is going to happen to you for a long time, for citizens or non-citizens, Yeah, right? it's, it's excruciating. Um, you know, First of all, you have to understand that, you know, they call it civil detention, but these are literally criminal jails that um, ICE rents out locally. They rent out space at Bergen County Jail or at Hudson County Jail or up at Orange County Jail. And so we're sitting in, you know, crim people are sitting in criminal jails, many of whom have never been in any kind of custody before. Mm -hmm. um, and they're told often few days you're going to see an immigration judge, but a few days, you know, if you're arrested for turnstile jumping in New York City or murder, something small or something large, you're going to get before a judge within 24 to 48 hours just to make sure um, that the cop had some basis to lock you up. You know, that system might not work the way it's supposed to work, but there are at least some rules that guide the system. There are no rules like that in the immigration system. So when Mr. Bussey got locked up, he was told, a few days you'll see an immigration judge. You say you're a citizen, you work it out with the immigration immigration judge few days turned into a few weeks, turned into a few months before he ever got before anybody. Wow. And that's the routine now. In New York, if you're swept off the street here by immigration agents and you think you're not supposed to be there, you're going to be sitting for weeks or months. Um, you know, we're hearing sometimes up to three months or more where people sit before they can even get before an immigration judge. And that means in many cases before they can get their lawyer and before they can make their case and show why they shouldn't be there. And the conditions are horrific. Wow. Well, in the very short time we have left, about two minutes, yeah. I want to talk about this project that you conceived of or initiated where you're helping individuals who are in immigration detention get um, free, um, free legal help, legal yeah. services. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, sure. You know, um, again, if you're arrested in New York City for something tiny or something minor, imagine turnstile jumping, you're going to get a lawyer the moment you set foot in court. If you can't afford one, one is going to be appointed to you. And in those cases, you're not realistically facing, you know, even a day in jail. Um, that same conviction for turnstile jumping, though, can trigger deportation for even somebody who has a green card. Mm. And once they get into immigration detention, there is no right to counsel. And so they are um, then forced to face trained government prosecutors in one of the most complex arenas of law, often sometimes in a language they don't understand, um, without any aid of any legal assistance whatsoever. It is a heartbreaking situation to go into an immigration court and watch that going on. And we saw that going on in New York City, and I saw that going on, and I would sit in the well with my clients waiting to, and see other people come through without lawyers, and time after time I saw people getting deported who absolutely shouldn't be. And so what we did is, 
um, I had the opportunity to work with Judge Robert Katzman, who's the chief judge of the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, and we started looking at this problem. And we looked at the numbers, and the numbers showed us that there was an acute—that the kind of epicenter of the immigrant representation crisis was in the detained context. And out of that came kind of the blueprint for a public defender system. And several groups, groups like the Northern Manhattan Coalition for Immigrant Rights and Make the Road New York, Center for Popular Democracy, worked together with our clinic and with the Vera Institute of Justice to try to advance a system. And um, the city council stepped up. And so what happened is, in, in New York City, um, they are funding now a system, and it's the first of its kind in the country, where if you are detained and facing deportation and you um, don't have enough money to hire an attorney, New York City is going to pay for an attorney for you. And there are three exceptional offices, the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Defenders here in Brooklyn, and Legal Aid also represents some folks in Brooklyn, and, and the Bronx Defenders up there, um, who will be representing you. And now we have kind of a system where the results are just outstanding before this program. Mm. Um, if you were detained and unrepresented, you had virtually no chance, a 4 percent chance of beating your case, of winning your deportation case and getting to stay here. Mm. With this program, an evaluation I just completed with Vera shows that now you have a 48 percent wow. chance of winning, meaning that for every 12 people whose deportation they've prevented, 11 of them would have been deported, not because they didn't have a right to be here, but because they couldn't vindicate that right without a lawyer. Is that office, and are those lawyers helping to cut down on the time people are spending in immigration detention, or is that still... So, uh, yeah, so they do um, in some ways. So um, they get appointed the first time somebody goes to court. So that entire long period of time we were talking about before, before somebody goes to court, they don't have a lawyer yet, right. and there's nothing the lawyers can do for sure. them. Certainly, once the lawyers um, uh, get there, then, yes, the lawyers are doing everything they can mm -hmm. um, to get them out. And we showed in that study that they're basically doubling the rates of release for people as well. So not only are they winning their cases, but they're getting people out during their cases, which makes a huge difference in their lives and, and in New York families. Mm -hmm. And um, I saw, you know, an interview with Mr. Bussey where he talked about how his life had been devastated, basically yeah. sleeping on friends' couches. Yeah. Uh, doesn't seem to have a really sustainable employment right now. Is he able to sue anyone for damages for this? Yeah. Yeah, so we're representing... Or are U.S. citizens, any U.S. citizens who've been caught up? In yeah. It? Yeah. So we're representing him right now in, um, in a kind of effort to get kind of some compensation for the kind of extreme injustice that he suffered. Mm -hmm. And we've uh, filed a notice of claim with the Department of Homeland Security um, requesting damages for that. Um, our hope and expectation is that the Department of Homeland Security will do the right thing and recognize the injustice mm -hmm. and offer appropriate compensation. And if they do, it will end there. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, then a lawsuit will follow. Mm -hmm. What does ICE say about all of this? And, and I, I ask that in the context of, you know, what your service that you initiated as a kind of maybe remedy so this mm -hmm. doesn't happen as much in the future. Yeah. But are they doing anything on their own to try to mitigate some of this once it's come to their attention? Right. So ICE has a fairly robust procedure on paper in place of how they're supposed to deal with it if somebody claims U.S. citizenship and a kind of a rigorous evaluation that's supposed to happen. Um, Unfortunately, that rigor is on paper, but not in practice. And so our real hope, and actually Mr. Bussey's hope, is that um, by kind of elevating these cases in, in the public consciousness, um, that we're going to get ICE to take more seriously their obligation to stop lock locking up people who shouldn't be locked up. And again, that's both citizens and non-citizens who are wrongfully being detained. And is there a hope that this service, that this public defender service, will expand throughout the country? And is that a, a, a realistic prospect? 
correct? Yeah, I think it is. Um, I think in a couple ways it is. I think we already see um, over a dozen jurisdictions engaging in efforts to, to replicate this, um, where there is some public funding coming forward, often matched with private funding, to ramp up access to counsel for immigrants facing deportation. There's an initiative that the VR Institute for Justice is running called the Safe Cities Initiative, which is designed to support other jurisdictions that want to learn from what New York has done, because it has been an incredible success. Um, so that's that's kind of up and running. But, you know, I think the longer-term fight is um, we need to get to a place eventually where we recognize that due process requires that we can't lock people up and threaten to separate them, you know, permanently from their family without providing them with the basic tools necessary for a fair process, and that means a lawyer. Peter, we're going to have to cut it off there, unfortunately, but thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate you Thanks sharing this Thanks for having us, me. And hopefully we'll get you back soon. Thanks. I think it's safe to say that no other neighborhood in Brooklyn has been transformed as radically in recent years as the Flatbush, Fulton, Atlantic vortex. And that transformation's not over. There's a plan for a thousand foot plus residential tower at Nine DeKalb, which would be Brooklyn's tallest building, and a proposed project at 80 Flatbush, which would include five buildings, including Brooklyn's second tallest. But Wednesday night, Community Board 2 voted nearly unanimously against that project. To help us understand that vote, we have two guests who are part of the group Block 80 Flatbush Towers. Henry Carrier, former VP of Community Education Council 15, welcome to 112BK. Thank you. And Ben Richardson, board member of the Fort Greene Association. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. So before we get started, in full disclosure, I need to mention that Alloy Development, the company that conceived of the project at 80 Flatbush, has contributed to arts and culture programming here at Brickhouse. For people who may not be familiar with this project, can we just kind of place it geographically? It is at the intersection. It's a sort of triangular lot that's bordered by 3rd Avenue and State Street and Flatbush Avenue and Skimmerhorn Street. Okay. And it's directly across from the new Apple store and Whole Foods on Ashland. Okay, well, thank you for setting that up for us. So the community board voted against the project, but that's not the end of the story, right, Henry? No. Uh, in addition, uh, we'll, we'll, we're looking towards the... Uh, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, he has a say in this. Then it proceeds to the city council. Steve Levin is the the council uh, member for for the area. Then it proceeds to the uh, district planning commission, which is a a group including appointees from the uh, mayor, and then to the city council, and they get to vote on it. Generally, however, most of these proposals, called the ULIP process, uh, usually get get gets approved, and that of course. Uh, concerns us. Well, so why is that? I mean, does, so does everybody in the process have to say yes? I mean, if the community board says no, does that influence the? No, the I think unfortunately, president? what what really happens, if anybody during the project says during the process says yes, we're in favor, you can pretty much guarantee that it'll go through. If everybody says no, you can't guarantee that it won't go through. Unfortunately, in my in my opinion. Um, the whole process is really geared to um, to promote the uh, the the developer's point of view uh, and also the administration's point of view, which in this case is is in favor. It doesn't really get to this part this this point until it's pretty much uh, almost already decided. So it's a very high bar for the community to uh, to to leap through. 
Um, and so, as far I mean, so you're saying that the that the mayor and of course the developers pushing it that the mayor may be in favor. As Ben, you found out at a um, at a town hall meeting when you you were able to address a question to Mayor De Blasio. Correct. Yes, I uh, attended a town hall that was hosted by Council Member Lori Cumbo, who I live in Fort Greene, so she is my local council member uh, back in December, and just simply posed the question about his position on the project and. Um, he didn't take a clear side one way or the other, but he did kind of hedge into saying that he didn't oppose it and that it did support a lot of the administration's uh, initiatives, such as affordable housing and schools and the like, uh, and office space in the area. So, um, you know, it was clear that when push came to shove, it was something that uh, he would likely be in favor of. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about that. So it sounds like he may be in favor. Why are you guys opposed to the project, Henry? Well, the first thing um, I want to say is that a rejection of this proposal does not mean that nothing will be built. In fact, as of right, the developers can build the tower taller than the Williamsburg Savings Bank one handsome place. So I want to make it very clear that we're not against all development. We're against development that finds a place and is going to build another tower as large as the Chrysler Building, completely out of scale, uh, completely contrary to the rezoning that was hammered out in 2004 and again looked at in 2010, which said this 80, 80 Flatbush Triangle was to be a transitional zone going from downtown Brooklyn, which has a density, called it FAR, an F-A-R of 12. And the FAR is a floor area. Floor area ratio, ratio yes. It's, a, it's kind of a proxy for density. Moving to six and a half, which is what we have now, and then the residential Burham Hill. Uh, and all of a sudden, developers come in and say, well, we don't like the six and a half. We want to go to 18. So that's almost tripling uh, the, the, the FAR. And it'll be bigger than anything else in downtown Brooklyn concurrently. And when you're saying tripling the FAR, it means essentially you could triple the height of a building, basically? Well, I think the height is actually taller than that. It's, it's basically over the entire lot is 18. So if you make something lower, you can make something higher. Oh, wow. So this will be the 13th largest building in all of New York mm -hmm. in a place that was originally designated to be a transition from from, again, the 12 in, in, in downtown Brooklyn to six and a half. Well, so, you know, Brooklyn is trying to become more vertical, and it almost seems like people are envisioning a corridor going down Flatbush um, that, you know, might be befitting of the fourth largest city in the country. I mean, I think right now our tallest building is about four. 514 feet, which is half as tall as Houston's tallest building, which is the fifth largest city in the country. Shouldn't Brooklyn have some kind of signature project, signature buildings that we can point to and, you know, a more vertical presence? So I think 514 feet is the height of one Hanson place, which was built in 1929. I, right. I think actually that may be 512, and then there's one that was just on Lawrence that's maybe 514. Right. But, but the, hub, the hub is across the street, and that's already at 50 stories. Uh -huh. So so that's a—I don't have the exact dimensions, but that's closer to 700 okay, feet. Okay. So, so what my, my information was dated. That's yeah. okay. Um, but the, the 9 DeKalb, which is squarely in downtown Brooklyn and closer to City Point in that area, uh, that is on its way. That's being developed, and that's headed for a thousand feet. So that's not really being contested. It's already up and running. And you know, I think 
downtown Brooklyn, having it be a, a metropolis and, a, you know, you can argue and have discussions about what density looks like in a downtown and what good urban planning is for a downtown like that. Um, this area is a fringe. It's a buffer zone. So it's a transition zone that is trying to kind of grab the core of downtown and pull it to the backyard of a residential neighborhood. Now, on top of that, though, this isn't just about contextual. I mean, that is an incredibly important argument that the context and the transition and respecting the zoning laws, which zoning laws are there for a reason. You can't have a nuclear power plant next to someone's home, next to a strip club. These are kind of all what the purpose of zoning is if you carry it to the extreme. But also, what's being asked here is an upzoning. So they're asking to wipe away the laws that were put in place by the urban planners who decided it should be the way it is, and to upzone it, which grants free air, grants free buildable rights. Mm -hmm. And so they have the right to build one-third of what they want to build, and so they're asking for something that, if you put a dollar value on it, it's about $350 million of free buildable rights mm -hmm. simply by going through this public process, asking for a million square feet of extra buildable square feet. Mm -hmm. So that's like if you went to the car dealership and you bought a Mercedes and you said, hey, I've got a great lawyer here, I think I should get these two other Bentleys for free because I bought the Mercedes. That's kind of the analogous of, you know, buying a lot for $100 million and getting an, a free $350 million. And, and Henry, is there a concern that if, they, if this exception is made an exception, that it won't be the exception anymore, that it might become the rule? Well, of course. I mean, who's to tell? But uh, it, it is interesting that, as Ben said, a transitional zone was put in specifically to be a transitional zone. One thing I want to say, though, that is the character of a city and the buildings in that city only measured by height. I mean, the Bible had the Tower of Babel. How high shall we go? And the fact is that Brooklyn does have an iconic building, and it's called the Williamsburg Savings Bank One Hanson Place. So we do, ha we do have some character. We can provide housing. We can provide what we need. We don't need to change uh, so drastically what has been, has been decided as proper urban planning for Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. When you talk about the, the Williamsburg, Savings Bank, Williamsburg Savings Bank Tower um, and how iconic that is, is that, though, a bit of nostalgia? I mean, you know, there are new buildings going up all the time in Manhattan, you know, one, the next, one taller than the next. Um, you know, clearly people want to see development in Brooklyn. Brooklyn is one of the hottest real estate markets out there. What are we to say to these developers? Is this kind of an inevitable thing, or is there really a way to kind of stop this and, and hold on to kind of what we know? Well, again, I don't think that we're, we're, we're trying to restrict development. The development allows for a perfectly acceptable, significant building at this site. But now they want to build another building that's almost twice as tall. So within the confines of the existing zoning, plus they can get actually additional bulk by having a go, a, taking the opportunity afforded to them through inclusionary housing, they can build another third on top of the six-and-a-half uh, floor area ratio. So nobody's trying to halt development. It's just absurd development. Another Chrysler building in Brooklyn I don't think is really reasonable. And when you talk about inclusionary housing, you mean affordable housing? Affordable housing, yes. Mm -hmm. 
And there is a plan for affordable housing, which is something that the mayor pointed to as something that he would like to see more of, and this is an opportunity for that. That is correct. But in order to make their plan work, which we probably don't have time to get into all the complexities of it at this point, but it includes schools and it includes the Department of Education's Educational Construction Fund, so it's a public-private partnership for developing uh, schools, in order to make that work, they're also requesting, in addition to the zoning exceptions, an exception to push the MIH mandatory inclusionary housing to phase two. So there will be no affordable housing in phase one. Normally, when you get the tax break for affordable housing, you build affordable housing as soon as you start building. That will not be the case here. Affordable housing will not come online until the tall tower is completed. At the earliest, if their aggressive timeline is, is met, it will be 2025. Right. So not a single unit before then. Is there also a concern about infrastructure and this being kind of uh, a burden to Absolutely. the existing infrastructure? Sewer, water, subway infrastructure. I mean, you know, you don't need to read too many articles about New York City infrastructure to know all these issues. And then if you drop a thousand units of residential housing and the I forget how many hundreds of tons of trash it's it, it's disclosed to generate uh, a week into this area that's zoned for not this type of, of use, it's going to have a massive impact. It will change the fabric of the neighborhood and the area irrevocably. And, you know, the argument is constantly stated that it's near a transit hub. Well, if they were paying taxes to contribute to beefing up and improving the transit hub and the sewer and the water and the infrastructure and the police and the fire, then maybe we'd have a discussion about how it's beneficial, but instead they're going to be taxing that transit hub further that is already not able to bear the burden of the current infrastructure. Are you concerned about the impact that this might have in in the neighborhood, in the surrounding neighborhoods as well? I know, Ben, you're part of the, the Fort Greene Association. Uh, wasn't there a recent study that one of the one of the colleges did about sort of about the shadows that the building would cast? Correct. Yeah, we've worked with Professor uh, Brent Porter, who's at uh, Pratt Institute, a renowned uh, architectural institute and design institute, and he's conducted a shadow study that uh, with very sophisticated technology that they have at Pratt, some of the best in the world. He's actually worked on the shadows at Machu Picchu, so he's kind of uh, pretty established credibility in the field and has shown that the shadows at, you know, the different equinoxes throughout the year will extend well into Fort Greene Park, uh, which is not that visible from if you're standing at the intersection of Atlantic and Flatbush. But the shadows cast by a thousand-foot, nearly thousand-foot tower will go all the way into the park. So you may say, well, who cares? It's just shadows. They just waft on by and not a big deal. But uh, the environmental impact study itself acknowledges that the Brooklyn Bears Community Garden, which is right there next to the, uh, the lot, will be uh, impacted in a way that will have negative impacts on its ability to grow a garden. Mm -hmm. So cannot be mitigated. Basically, the garden should find another location, is their response, but they acknowledge in their own documentation that the shadows of this building will effectively destroy a community garden, which provides a solace for seniors who walk there, as well as a community place for students to come and learn about farming and gardening and, and the like. You know, the Business Improvement District and other people, unions and so forth, are in support of this project. And of course, they claim economic activity, they claim jobs. Well, you know, we could build a Walmart and Prospect Park, too, and I suppose that would create jobs and, and economic activity. And, you know, I, I really think we need to measure what at what cost. 
I'm sorry we have to cut things off here. We're out of time. I appreciate you guys coming on the show and talking about this. Uh, if people would like to know more about this, your position, uh, about the opposition to this project, where can they go? So we have a, a website that we've uh, launched and maintained called block80flatbushtowers.org. So that's block80, the number 80, flatbushtowers.org. And there we try to collect information about all the various uh, media coverage that's put out and uh, try to represent the, the different sides of the argument and, and educate the public about it. Also on our Twitter handle at block80flatbush. Okay, well, again, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you very thank much. You very much. That's the show. Ashley will be back next week discussing refugee resettlement at a time when we're admitting few refugees to resettle. Plus, prom season, teacher strikes, and our first installment of a new segment on Brooklyn Food and Drink, this one featuring coffee. Hope you can join us. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. Also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grachowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hagasek and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. And our executive producers are Aziz Isham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>